Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. Did you know nearly 80% of a child's brain is fully developed by the age of three? What a milestone to achieve in such a short amount of time. So naturally, all us parents want to know, how do we support our children at the most critical stages of their brain development? Neurosurgeon and founder of Cerebelli, Dr. Teresa Persner, wondered this too. It was when she had her first child that she discovered there was no baby food on the market that had the nutrition she knew through her PhD work that impacted babies' brains' development. And so, Cerebelli was born, the only organic baby purees and toddler snacks that lead with vegetables to provide 16 key brain-supporting nutrients. So as your baby explores their Veggie First Clean Label Project certified flavors, you can feel confident this airplane is coming in with no added sugar and spoonfuls of nutrients you can only find in Cerebelli. Parenting is an art. Cerebelli is the science. And today's listeners can get 20% off your first order of Cerebelli with code JUSTINGREDIENTS, plus an additional 15% off when you subscribe and save. Again, that code is JUSTINGREDIENTS. Dr. Daniel Torres is currently in his second year practicing as a physician at Red River Health and Wellness. His focus is helping patients with autoimmune diseases and chronic conditions. He graduated from University of Western States in Portland, Oregon, and has dual undergraduate degrees in biology and exercise science. He's completed all functional medicine APEX seminars and the Karazian Clinical Mastership Program. He is currently enrolled at the Carrick Institute Clinical Science and Neurorehabilitation. When he's not helping patients, he spends most of his time with his wife and three kids, running and exercising. Welcome to the show, everyone, today. I am really excited to have Dr. Torres here with us today. I don't have any podcasts about autoimmune diseases, and you listeners, my followers, ask about autoimmune um, questions quite often. So I have brought an expert in today to tell us all things autoimmune. So I'm really excited to have him today. So thank you, Dr. Torres, for being here today. Oh, absolutely. It's an honor. So tell my listeners a little bit more about yourself, your background, and maybe your experience or how you got into treating autoimmune diseases. Yeah, that's a great question. So I've been working with autoimmune patients pretty much since getting out of chiropractic school about two and a half years ago. So for me, this whole journey of autoimmunity really actually started as a student and seeing Dr. Josh Red, who is our head physician at the Red River offices that I work at, um, working with these Hashimoto's and autoimmune patients and just seeing the, you know, the big difference that he was able to make, you know, in just a few weeks. So um, I, I got to kind of see the, his work and what he did, the influence, the impact. And so for me, that whole curiosity of like, wow, you know, what are these doctors doing that's bringing this, this type of transformation, not just physically, but changes in their life. So um, as a student, I, I got to see that. And it was really interesting because a lot of these Hashimoto's patients and the autoimmune patients had seen multiple doctors and it had been like 10 years since uh, for, for having some of these symptoms of fatigue and pain and brain fog and depression 
and food intolerances, GI issues. I mean, you name it. And most of the women were really active in terms of searching for true answers and solutions that was going to essentially change their life. And, uh, you know, just weren't getting uh, much headway with anything. And then after working with Dr. Red, uh, within a few months, um, they started to turn the whole thing around. And uh, so for me as a student, you know, seeing that, I'm learning a lot of things in chiropractic school. But uh, I was like, man, no one's teaching me this uh, in terms of how to do this. And I just remember sitting there thinking, how in the world are these type of doctors doing this? And so, yeah, coming out of school, I really wanted to, to discover, you know, what things using diets and lifestyle and things in that realm can really uh, allow these people who are suffering for so long and not getting answers to really start to be able to turn things around. So, um, yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty incredible. So coming out of school, I wanted to work with a really strong group. And then I learned a little bit about red river and saw they're working, you know, two to 300 Hashimoto's patients every single day. Wow. (laughs) And so I long story short, after what I consider nothing short of like divine intervention, I was able to connect with Dr. Josh Red and Red River, and uh, I've been working there ever since. Oh, I love that you just wanted to help people and know more and do better. So love doctors that are out there doing that. I want to start at the very basics with autoimmune diseases because we're hearing more and more about them. They're becoming more and more popular or more are having these issues. So for those that don't really know what an autoimmune disease is, what is it and what are some of the common ones that we might be aware of? Oh, that's a great question. So the first thing to understand about autoimmunity is it's truly the immune system that is the culprit. So with any autoimmune disease, essentially what's going on here is the immune system has flagged, so to say, using what are called antibodies on certain body tissues and organs. So sometimes that's like a single system, like, you know, if it's your thyroid, uh, that's an autoimmune disease like Hashimoto's, but it can be the brain, it can be to multiple um, tissues and organs. So um, with autoimmunity, the main thing to understand is that the immune system is considering these body tissues as like a virus, essentially like a foreign invader. So whenever something triggers the immune system, to produce uh, inflammation, that inflammation is targeted and directed towards these specific body tissues. And irreversibly, part of that uh, tissue of these organs, whether it's the liver, the, uh, you know, the adrenals, um, the brain, whatever it is, irreversibly over time, autoimmunity just chips down on these systems and that drives these symptoms. So the inflammation created from the immune system ultimately is the culprit behind all of that. And so the big thing with autoimmunity, a lot of people are thinking, you know, my, my thyroid's off and, and they put so much focus on that. Uh, so like Hashimoto's is probably the most common autoimmune condition. And uh, a lot of people just focus like, okay, what's wrong with the thyroid? I, I'm hypothyroid. I need some uh, medication to replace this deficiency of thyroid hormone. When in reality, uh, the thyroid really is just the victim the mm-hmm. immune system is actually destroying the tissue and driving the symptoms. So no matter what it is, if it's targeted at the brain, if it's targeted at the thyroid, um, it's going to be the same underlying core mechanisms that are going off in the immune function. 
So when an autoimmune patient recognizes kind of that full spectrum and web of like how the inter- immune system is interacting with different systems, uh, they can get a lot of traction and start to really uh, put that condition into remission. So to summarize, I mean, um, yeah, autoimmunity is essentially where the immune system has lost its discernment to know mm. what is truly a threat and what is not. In this case, it's literally mistaking part of the body for something like a pathogen. So like with Hashimoto's, the immune system literally believes the thyroid should not be a part of the body. It needs to be destroyed. And so, you know, with multiple sclerosis, we're thinking brain and neurologic tissue. Um, so yeah, lots of different conditions. I think there's over, I mean, there's definitely over a hundred, uh, known conditions with autoimmunity. That's such a great way that you explained autoimmune issues. So what is making them mistake, let's say, that tissue? Is it the inflammation? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when you look at the fundamentals behind why the immune system is doing that, somewhere along the line, and it's usually a cumulative effect, I, I wouldn't say it was like one, I mean, it could be one defining event, but there's been a combination of stressors that essentially has made the immune system become very, very defensive. That can certainly be emotional dysregulation. So emotional dysregulation can lead to immune dysregulation. And what happens here is all of a sudden these immune cells start to become really hyper-aggressive. And so um, they really become defensive and they start mistaking things like foods as, as problems when they shouldn't be chemicals, they start to become hyperactive and aggressive. So toxins, environmental triggers, uh, certainly viruses can, can cause this. There is a little bit of, in terms of like, you know, genetic uh, predisposition. But um, at the end of the day, the environmental influences and the stressors, whether that's a toxin, whether that's a disease, um, so many different things, they tend to be the big initiators of making your immune system no longer recognize and become very, very aggressive towards all sorts of things. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so genetics doesn't play that big of a role because I hear quite often like, oh, it's genetic, my Um, mother had it, you know, my sisters have it, whatever. Right, yeah, great question. So mm, genetics, I would argue, is gonna be more uh, minor in terms of what would initiate an autoimmune condition. So uh, there's much more bigger evidence behind well, toxins certainly are huge. Um, stressful events. I would say the biggest, the biggest thing that I've seen is actually hormone imbalances in women. So when women get on, uh, sometimes it's a birth control. That's a huge one. Right after pregnancy, that's a huge initiator. So if you look at the autoimmunity, most of them are, uh, are going to be prevalent in women. And that's primarily because of the fact that women are having a lot more surges of estrogen. So estrogen out of all the hormones, inability to clear estrogen, inability to make estrogen like you need to, getting excessive estrogen. So when you get a hormone replacement, uh, they're dosing uh, about a million times the amount that your body actually produces. And wow. so, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm against, uh, you know, get our hormone replacement by any means, but if the body can't actually handle that and filter that, Hormone imbalances and surges from what I've seen are the number one initiator of autoimmunity 
as well as the number one trigger that flares it up over time. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay, that's good to know. So let's talk more about some basics of these um, autoimmune issues. So is like lupus, MS, celiacs, are those all uh, considered autoimmune diseases? Those are all autoimmune diseases, correct. So the thing with lupus um, that's a little bit different is that lupus is a they call it like a systemic um, autoimmune cascade where with autoimmunity, it can be targeted towards a single tissue, like one or maybe two tissues. Whereas like lupus and um, there, there's a handful of them, but they target multiple tissues. So okay. they can be like connected tissues and they can target the vessels. They can target the eyes. They can target the brain. They can target the heart. They can target the liver. So there's, there's, those are hitting um, a much more broad spectrum where they're hitting multiple tissues. Things like MS, you know, Hashimoto's, celiac, usually those are just hitting like one or one or two tissues. The thing with Hashimoto's that a lot of people don't understand, um, which Hashimoto's is probably the number one type of autoimmunity that we see, the immune system is targeting the thyroid tissue. But if you look at Hashimoto's, a lot of uh, women who have that suffer from all sorts of brain challenges. They have tons of brain fog depression. Their, their brain's not producing neurotransmitters like it needs to. They have vertigo and dizziness and nausea and, um, and neurologic issues because there's an area inside of the brain called your cerebellum. And the same antibodies, so like TPO antibodies, thyroglobulin antibodies, that literally flag the thyroid protein tissue structure as a foreign invader those can cross-react and go to that area specifically in the brain. And all of a sudden, it is now the Hashimoto's is targeting thyroid, but just as impactful, just as much inflammation, just as much target is towards the brain. Mm -hmm. And so we'll do a neurologic exam. We'll have someone balance just on like one foot, have them close their eyes. And most women with Hashimoto's, they can barely last a couple seconds. Oh, and so um, simple problems in terms of balance. And the really interesting thing about that condition is that the fight and flight centers, so things that would shift someone into like an anxiety fight and flight state, they course directly through the cerebellum. So like when you're getting inflammation through your cerebellum, it's going to light up those fight and flight centers and you'll get, uh, you know, you'll get depression, you'll get unreasonable anxiety. And so the entire brain's neuron structure is just like right on razor threshold. So they get a little bit of a trigger, a little bit of a stress, and they're in a full-blown, uncontrolled fight and flight phenomenon. Hmm. And so in terms of autoimmunity, that's, that's how it works. Okay. So I'm curious to know then two things. One, can these be cured or only treated? Great question. So at this point in time, uh, nobody on this planet has a true cure for autoimmunity, meaning, okay, we never have to worry about that, that being a problem for us again. You can put a condition into what's called remission where essentially, yeah, they have it, but it's dormant. It's not active. It's not giving them problems. Uh, in order to do that, though, you have to really go through and know uniquely and individually what your personal triggers are. That's why it's really kind of, I don't know if I'd say dangerous, but it's, it's not nearly as effective to go on like what's called a linear model with autoimmunity. 
because the triggers that varies from individual to individual of what's getting that autoimmunity to come out of remission is just going to vary. So like, for example, hormone imbalances for, for women, if they notice like their menstrual cycles are really severe, um, they've had infertility issues, uh, they have, they know, we know they have hormone imbalances. So if a woman has hormone imbalances, um, until they get those hormones dialed in, their circadian rhythm on par, then their chance of putting that autoimmune condition into true remission is pretty much 0% chance uh, for, for a long term. So interesting. Okay, so let's talk about things that can play a role in autoimmunity. Because I know diet plays a big role in autoimmunity, correct? Huge. Very much. So what plays the biggest role? Is it food sensitivities? Yeah. So when it comes to diet, first off, any autoimmune patient, their number one priority should be dietarily to create something that's significant enough to truly allow their condition to go into remission and to lower inflammation. So if someone's really uh, doing very well in diet and they've dialed this in, it's going to make up for a lot of the different triggers for, for that person. But um, dietarily, you, you said you know food sensitivities. Out of everything that causes destruction and inflammation dietarily, hands down, food intolerances and food sensitivities are going to be the most dangerous and destructive. Now, the reason being is a food sensitivity is more than just like a bad food, Okay. Uh, because the food sensitivities are those specific foods that the immune system has actually created antibodies against, just like the self tissue of an autoimmune condition. So um, when someone, and, and the thing that you have to remember is food intolerances could be completely healthy foods. Like we'll have um, individuals come in all the time and they're like, you know, I'm eating salads every meal. I'm eating really healthy. Um, and then we'll run a serum antibody test to test for these food intolerances and, you know, three or four different foods that they've been consistently eating are triggering inflammation. So the reason that a food sensitivity is a lot worse than just an inflammatory or bad unhealthy food is because it completely dysregulates the immune system function and activates the autoimmunity. So literally even one food intolerance left in the diet can be enough to completely keep that patient inflamed and unwind all of the hard work that they're doing. Wow, just one food sensitivity. Yep, if it's, if it's, if it's being uh, consumed consistently. So like, you know, if that's like every three or four days, um, certainly because a flare-up can last. Uh, I mean, usually if an autoimmune patient has a flare-up, which what you wanna do with autoimmunity is really set yourself up with a game plan to recover if you have a flare-up. So screening out for food intolerances um, is huge. So what that's going to really allow an autoimmune patient to do is not um, unnecessarily restrict. So I'll see women come in all the time and they are eating so good. They're doing these major extremes and they're like, I'm not losing weight. I'm having depression. I'm, uh, I'm inflamed. My joints hurt. I'm getting body swelling. I'm getting GI issues. I don't get it. And so when you can get clarity around the specifics, like when you go run a food sensitivity test and it's an IgG serum antibody test and it's a high quality lab that's doing it, I mean, you'll get on a sheet of paper about 85% 
of the most dangerous reactive foods for that specific individual. Yeah, I did one of those tests and it's actually really interesting because uh, gluten just was, I should not touch it. It was off the charts. <laughs> so yeah, it's very common. Yep. Okay. So with these food sensitivities, the problem is, is that they're causing inflammation in the body, correct? That's exactly right. So you hit it right on the head. Okay. So inflammation, how does someone know that they have inflammation in their body? Those signs that you talked about, like the depression and joints hurting, things like that? That's a perfect question. So there's a couple ways that you can measure, which by the way, if you have autoimmunity, you will definitely want to measure and keep an eye on your inflammatory levels. Now, one way is through objective evidence, which you can get through blood chemistry. So before we would start uh, autoimmune patient into a care plan, I mean, we're pretty much measuring in a blood panel like their inflammatory markers. So there's a number of them, but some really good ones just to start out with. Um, C-reactive protein is certainly a big one. So if someone's really inflamed and their autoimmunity is unstable, you're going to see that C-reactive protein starting to rise. Um, White blood cells, okay? So that one's really monitoring um, the stability of the immune system as well. One other one that not a lot of people, not a lot of doctors I see screen for this one, but is so critical because when it comes to inflammation, as important as it is to avoid it in the first place, equally as important is your ability to clear it out from the body. Like someone can be getting exposed to all these, uh, you know, triggers and environmental inflammatory influences, but if their body and their liver is clearing that really cleanly, really effectively and productively, um, it's not going to impact them maybe even at all or uh, significantly less. Now, the way to measure that one, that marker is called homocysteine, and it's a liver specifically to the liver inflammatory markers. So those are, those are some really good, good ones to, to measure and look at. So people can just go to their regular doctor and ask for this blood work and see what their inflammation is. A, a lot of the times. Now, I do see a lot of individuals who will ask and they may, their doctor may not run those. So depending on what they think is necessary, sometimes the doctor will, will refuse. Um, but, um, yeah, if you could find a clinician who will get, get the homocysteine, um, certainly the white blood cells, C-reactive protein. Um, another big one too, that a lot of people overlook is hemoglobin A1C. So a lot of times people think of hemoglobin A1C as a blood sugar marker. Right. And it does have some, you know, it does reflect those patterns, but it represents a process called glycation, um, which is an inflammatory markers. So the higher your hemoglobin A1C is, um, which about 5.2 to 5.6 is like an optimal range. Once it starts getting above like 5.6, um, you know, you're inflamed. And in particular, that one really reflects how well your antioxidants are doing. So the higher hemoglobin A1C is above 5.6, the lower your antioxidants are. Okay. Mm. So your antioxidants are getting really depleted. And so um, hemoglobin A1C is also a really big one. But yeah, most doctors uh, will screen for those. Absolutely. That's so interesting. So what's causing this inflammation in people's bodies, just their food or other things? Yeah, that's a great question. So when you look at inflammation and what's specifically generating the inflammatory cytokines, and 
there's a number of different ones, um, you know, uh, TNF alpha interleukin six so interleukin six is a specific cytokine in particular cause estrogen imbalances. So hormone fluctuations, again, if someone has hormone imbalances and fluctuations and the liver's not clearing hormone and they get hormone buildup or they're getting hormone imbalances because of blood sugar problems, like it sounds really bizarre, but not eating enough, skipping meals all the time, not eating enough. If you're chronically calorically restrictive, that will be enough to throw off your hormones and it will literally trigger the autoimmune condition to create inflammation, just like if you ate a food sensitivity or food intolerance. Oh, that's so interesting. So a lot of people have inflammation, but don't have an autoimmune issue, right? Or do they go hand in hand? Yeah. So the big difference I would say with an autoimmune condition versus uh, just generalized inflammation, number one, you can get inflammation just from certain things being exposed to certain things like eating inflammatory foods. Like for example, you know, the, uh, the protein in uh, dairy. So casein is really inflammatory. So if you eat dairy too much, yeah, you're, you're putting inflammation in your body. With autoimmunity, um, the immune system is creating the inflammation, but it becomes a lot more uh, systemic, as well as on the, on the opposite side, also targeted. Okay? So when I say systemic inflammation, whenever that autoimmunity is being triggered, your entire body is getting inflamed. Like The immune system will create all these inflammatory cells. It's going to go into the bloodstream. And if it lands into the muscles, you're going to have fatigue. You're going to have poor muscle stamina. If it goes to the brain, you're going to have brain fog. You're going to have depression. You're going to have inability to focus. If it goes to the cardiovascular system, uh, you're going to have problems there. So you can't have energy and you can't have vitality when you're inflamed. So the whole goal and objective out of whether you have autoimmunity or whether you don't uh, should really be to lower inflammation down as low as you can possibly get it. Okay. That's really interesting. So if someone wants to go to the doctor and get diagnosed for inflammation, do they Mm -hmm. just go, if they have those list of symptoms or like what symptoms should they be looking for before they actually go to their doctor? That's a great question. So ultimately at the end of the day, um, your symptoms are going to be driven by inflammation. So it, it sort of depends on the severity a lot of patients, you can tell they're inflamed, uh, you know, they're, they're getting body swelling, um, they're getting skin outbreaks, um, they're getting hyper allergic responses, but their blood work may, some of those inflammatory markers may not be all that high. So the analysis of your blood chemistry is also really important. So looking things through, uh, looking and analyzing blood chemistry, which I would say is probably one of the main things that kind of differentiates us from what, what we kind of do and looking at them through a narrow optimal perspective is going to allow you to objectively catch the small details of inflammation that are leading to big problems. Okay. So like a lot of times, for example, usually when I send someone out for uh, like a, to measure their blood sugar, it, with glucose, I'll get a range anywhere from like 65 to 100, 65 to 99-ish. The thing is, is you can have all sorts of blood sugar problems that are causing hormone imbalances and inflammation, and you're still inside 65 to 99, okay? <laughs> so um, you could still have symptoms, but like it looks fine or looks normal on paper. So if you actually looked up in terms of endocrine or like hematology journals, 
for an optimal level of glucose, you're going to find a much more narrow perspective of like 85 to 95. So the key to that, and if you're really wanting to get to the root of these problems is identifying the very, very small dysfunctions that ultimately are leading to the big problems. So uh, with autoimmunity, it's about all of the small things. If you can become number one, aware, you can get clarity around your triggers. You can get clarity around all your systems, tissues, organs, their dysfunctions, their imbalances, their deficiencies, and then dial those in to a, to a dime and, and get those details dialed in. That's where um, you know transformation will really start to become significant and they'll start to feel like they're getting their life back and things are starting to get under control. Okay. So it comes down to empowering the patient as to what they can do on their own. It sounds like, cause there's a lot of work that they need to do. So if someone comes to you and is inflamed or dealing with inflammation, do you start them on a certain diet for, to lower that inflammation? Is that the starting point or is it starting with supplements? Where do you guys start? Oh, you hit it right on that. That was a great question. So first off, when you said empowered the patient, at the end of the day, if there was one word I could use to describe what is an effective model for autoimmunity, it's going to be that. In terms of teaching uh, a patient enough about this condition that they become the expert. So the thing that they have to remember, and again, this is where you really have to look three-dimensional and kind of get out of the linear model. Because if I said, hey, like, you know, just do step one, step two, step three, cool, you're good to go. The reality is um, the autoimmunity is going to shift and evolve and change over time. So a clinician, if they really want to be able to make a difference for a patient, they have to be able to teach the patient how to play this game. So number one, helping that patient reach remission and then staying in remission as long as humanly possible And if they ever come out of remission, showing them how to recover from that super quick. So they go right back into remission. So you can spare as much tissue damage throughout the body throughout their lifetime. Okay. Um, So in terms of the first step, I would say the doctor taking on the form of a teacher and empowering the patient and teaching them enough about the physiology behind it and going through their triggers so they learn what their triggers are. At the end of the day, and this was a very humbling experience, your patients will become better doctors on their condition than pretty much you are if you do it right. I love that you say that. (laughs) It's kind of tricky how it works. And it takes a lot of like kind of almost reservation to, to, to really empower them to figure it out because at the end of the day, they're with themselves 24 seven, right? So they're going to be seeing things that you are not going to see. So if you have that mindset going in there, like, hey, I can do this all on my own for this patient and I will figure out every single part, it's going to be a failed model every single time. So you have to help them become the leader. You have to help them develop the skill set, the know-how, the recognition for their own condition. And then you've got to support them, care for them, uh, and most importantly, teach them how to really own and dominate their unique game. And that's when autoimmunity, again, in terms of intervention, um, that's, where, that's where things become effective. And so, yeah, we, we definitely start a lot with blood chemistry. Um, but at the end of the day, every single patient is, is unique. And so that whole aspect of helping empower them is, is you hit it right on the head of that. Because there's not a magic pill for 
inflammation, right? There's no pill you can take. So it's going to be lowered by lifestyle choices and food, correct? Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there are certain medications that do, you know, target inflammatory pathways. Usually though, they're kind of like down-regulating and suppressive. Like usually those are immune type of suppressants. Um, so, uh, you know, like a steroid, um, that's gonna, that's gonna throw the immune system off. Um, not to say, you know, sometimes those things are, are, are absolutely necessary in my opinion, but, um, at the end of the day, you want to choose the lifestyle dietary and even natural nutraceuticals and supplements that are going to empower your body to handle greater and greater loads of inflammation without getting inflamed. Okay. So, um, there's lots of things. The biggest thing I would say is, uh, identifying, identifying, removing the specific triggers for that patient. Okay. So if someone's listening to this episode and they're like, Oh, I've been dealing with autoimmune issues, or I've been dealing with inflammation. I need to fix my diet. What would be the like top three things you would tell them to fix in their diet? That's a great question. So the first place, number one, start with food intolerances. Run a food sensitivity test, an IgG serum antibody test. Um, removing those alone usually does wonders. So you have to become aware of what you're not aware of is triggering the autoimmunity. So food intolerances, which we talked about. The second biggest thing, if a patient really wants to feel good, and this is really neglected, is your specific eating frequency and eating amount. So a lot of the women that we work with who have like Hashimoto's or an autoimmunity, their dietary quality is phenomenal. It's great. It looks fantastic. But they're just constantly not meeting their caloric demands. They're always, they're, they're trying to restrict, um, and it's in turn throwing their hormones off and triggering their immune system. So I tell patients all the time, how much you eat and when you eat will completely rewire your hormone rhythms, your circadian rhythm, and be as influential as even what you eat. So if um, someone can dial in their blood sugar, um, really good, that, that's going to be uh, significant. So a, a diet for autoimmunity has to be significant and powerful enough that it gets that person out of all of their blood sugar problems and rebalances their hormones. So for example, if someone's eating too much sugary food, even if it's not a food sensitivity, the more blood sugar rises, the more insulin is going to rise. And the higher insulin, insulin does everything that you pretty much uh, don't want to happen. Um, <laughs> but insulin is like a key that opens a door on a cell so that sugar can go be metabolized. If you're constantly eating uh, glycemic, uh, you know, simple carbs and, and stuff like that, um, you get more and more insulin spikes and that leads to an insulin resistance. So diets that favor uh, lower production of insulin are really effective to unwind autoimmune patterns because insulin elevations and spikes are a direct trigger for the autoimmunity. The same thing with the hormone cortisol you produce cortisol when your blood sugar goes too low. So cortisol is the stress hormone. So it's going to be released whenever you have a stressor. Um, and when your blood sugar goes too low, so like if you skip meals, if you just don't eat enough, you're going to be taxing your adrenals to make cortisol uh, to a really high level. And that in turn can turn on the autoimmune condition. There comes a point in time that we see this 
and a patient starts to trend what's called low blood sugar, kind of all the time, hypoglycemia. So if they go five or six hours without eating, it's like they, they get shaky, they get irritable, they get lightheaded, um, they get fatigue. And um, what happens is when their stress load is so high and they constantly skip meals and they just don't eat enough, they'll put so much strain and wear and tear on their adrenals that their adrenals can't keep up with it. So it just kind of trends low, uh, low all the time, the cortisol levels. And so their blood sugar just trends so low all the time. And what happens is their body uses another hormone, which is the adrenaline fight and flight hormones, and it helps stabilize blood sugar. So all of a sudden their baseline um, adrenaline and anxiety hormones just rise and rise and rise. So they're irritable. They're getting temperature fluctuations. Their heart rate's up. Their blood pressure's up. Um, and again, I'm not talking to you like from a psychologic standpoint here. Like this is a physiologic mechanism all coming from a hormone imbalance. So like if you take this a step further, a lot of people have challenges with insomnia. And I would say sleep is probably the, one of the top pillars along with diet. So if someone can dial in their sleep routine, things are really effective for them with autoimmunity. But if they've depleted their cortisol reserves and they try and go to sleep at night, you know, one, two, three in the morning, their blood sugar is just going down and down and down. So they're going to surge more and more adrenaline and mm. they're going to wake up. Like you can't sleep when you have adrenaline going through your blood and they wake up anxious. They wake up worried. They have, uh, you know, hot flashes. They're sweating, um, stuff like that. So that's all in an adrenaline effect. That's, that's completely unwinding things. So uh, food intolerances, certainly dialing in a blood sugar with a specific eating frequency, making sure you're getting enough to eat, eating enough that your blood sugar is not crashing. And then the other one is generally just removing inflammatory foods. So foods that naturally have inflammatory properties. The thing I would say on that is it's not that you can't handle these foods, um, but you have to know kind of your, I call it your tolerance for them. So like your dairy tolerance. So if you know, um, you know, some of these dairies, are not a food sensitivity. It's not a food trigger. Um, then you just kind of have to know like, okay, how much of this food can I have and still be asymptomatic? So, you know, if I have, uh, you know, a half a bowl of yogurt, I'm fine. If I have half a bowl of yogurt, you know, two, three, four days in a row, all of a sudden, yeah, my energy is kind of chipping down. Okay. The same thing with sugary foods. Again, it's not to say you could never eat those, but you just have to know like your tolerance for each one of them. And by the way, your tolerance for those lesser healthy foods um, tends to get more and more expansive as um, a person adopts other healthy lifestyle interventions. Like if someone's exercising six days a week and they're, you know, really doing well in the fitness realm, yeah, they can get away with a lot more and still feel great. Yeah, those are all three really interesting tips. And I don't think a lot of women realize that not eating enough or their blood sugar can cause such hormonal imbalances because what's interesting to me is those hormonal imbalances can cause weight gain, but yet they're restricting their calories to try to lose that weight. So it's like a vicious cycle that's not benefiting them. Oh, for sure. So that's, you hit on a really significant standpoint. So there's this myth of like calorie in, calorie out. And uh, the reality is, <laughs> this might sound weird, but if it were that easy. Um, we'd all look amazing. Yeah, we'd all <laughs> right? look amazing. Yeah, so, totally. So like what happens here is someone can shift themselves right into a major storage state 
by chronic restriction. Like I would say when we work with a patient who has like type two diabetes, I would say nine out of 10 of them did not get that way where their blood sugar is super high and they're kind of trending like almost like an obese spectrum um, from overeating. In fact, I bet if you go to most uh, people who have developed type two diabetes and you ask them how much they're eating, they're eating tiny, like one meal a day. They're like, I am barely eating and I'm still putting on weight. Uh, They're not overeating. (laughs) Um, And uh, the, the reality is, is when you restrict down more and more and more, eventually you're going to kind of hit rock bottom metabolically and your body's going to shift you into an insulin resistance pattern where every time you eat, you weigh oversurge insulin. And when you oversurge a hormone, your receptors shut down and don't respond to that hormone. So someone's like, I am restricting. I'm barely eating nothing. I cannot lose this weight if my life depended on it. And it's because that chronic restriction pattern has just shoved them right into a source state. So they're like, well, I'm going to do intermittent fasting. And what they're doing is just throwing wood on the fire. So it's like, I'm going to try and restrict, which ultimately is like throwing them more and more into a storage state. That's so interesting. So when you suggest that they should eat more often, are we talking every two or three hours? Yeah, great question. So it's very patient specific. Um, There definitely are patients who intermittent fasting will be something really good. Um, in general though, if a patient dials in eating every two to three hours, so you don't want to like graze. So if you graze and you're eating like, you know, every 30 to 60 minutes, you're kind of just keeping your insulin high. But when you go every like two to three hours and you're kind of having a little bit of a gap, so your blood sugar kind of goes down, but then it pops back up. That eating frequency is really powerful to unwind insulin resistance. And, uh, that's a great starting point. But as someone gets more metabolically sound, that will allow them that. So that's going to kind of lay the foundation. Um, and then it just gets better because all of a sudden it's like, you can go to higher and higher interventions where it's like, okay, we're making hormone like we need to, we're getting energy. Now I can go down like a fasting spectrum where fasting with autoimmunity is pretty phenomenal because it acts on your T reg cells. If someone can get to that level where it's like, I can take on fasting and I'm exercising, I've stabilized my blood sugar. That is like the closest thing I've seen to true, like, cure when it comes to autoimmunity. I love that you talked about intermittent fasting because I have had podcast guests on here talking about the health benefits of it. And this is where Mm -hmm. I feel like we all need to be empowered with our own health and know our health issues. Because like you said, for some that are dealing with adrenal issues or hormonal imbalances or this inflammation, eating every two or three hours may be really beneficial for them. But those that are more metabolically sound, like you said, intermittent fasting has some amazing health benefits. So I love that you talk about both and we aren't extreme as to only this or only that. It's more know your body and do what's right for your body. For sure. So, okay, I want to ask you, I want to move topics a little bit and talk about environmental toxins with autoimmune issues, because a lot of times you don't hear about that. That's not a mainstream idea. So when we're talking about environmental toxins, are we talking about like the parabens and phthalates and beauty products and the BPA and plastics? And are these the type of environmental toxins we're talking about? So those certainly can be triggers, yes. So with the toxins, um, I mean, there can be a lot of things, but yeah, anything like that, it really depends on how well someone's clearing toxins. 
So like someone can be getting exposed to a high level of toxins, but if their antioxidant levels are always exceeding that, or at least equaling that, they'll never have symptoms ever. And so typically, and this is one thing uh, the listeners will definitely probably want to remember is if you can clear it really efficiently through the liver, very rarely are you going to have too much issues with it. So the more you support your clearance and detoxification pathways, um, the better ability you'll have to tolerate toxins. Now that's not saying, you know, go out and expose yourself, but yeah, liver clearance and antioxidant status can really allow someone to number one, avoid problems with toxins in the first place. But number two, when your immune system starts creating antibodies for these toxins and they become direct triggers. So like, for example, I had a lady who was like, I was working out six days a week. I was in great shape. I had no issues, no problems. I moved into a house and within about two months, I gained, uh, you know, about 35 pounds. I started getting all these problems. We developed an autoimmune condition and go to find out she had mold in her house. So mold spores are a huge trigger for autoimmunity. Okay. So if you're talking about clearing the liver, are we talking about supplementing then with possibly like glutathione using things like spirulina, resveratrol? What are we talking about? Ooh, great question. So there's certainly some really effective liver products, really effective that will work great. I personally think the lifestyle things that you can make on your liver tend to play a more profound role. So like when someone exercises, they stimulate mitochondria growth and development, which are the energy producing factors in your cells. And the interesting about ex- thing about exercise is that it doesn't just stimulate mitochondria, you know, in the musculoskeletal system, it will do every system. So the brain, the liver. So like as someone does things to improve their energy ATB producing factories, that organ is going to become better and better. So when you support um, the liver detox pathways by doing things like exercise, that's going to build your mitochondria in that organ to really high levels, your liver becomes more and more capable of handling whatever comes its way. Oh, I love Um, that. So that's, that's, that's one way. Yeah. So besides exercise, are there other things that you can do to help support your liver? B vitamins in their active form. So a lot of women will have the MTHFR gene where they can't convert inactive forms of B vitamins to active uh, forms. So supporting methylation through active forms of B vitamins, B6, B9, B12, you can know if they're active, if they say methyl, uh, well, whatever it is, it's like methylfolate. Those make the liver powerful and more productive. B vitamins, um, glutathione is a really phenomenon, uh, phenomenal uh, product for that as well. So glutathione is the mother antioxidant. Um, it activates every other antioxidants, but certainly B vitamins. Um, there is a product, and you know it depends on what part of the liver. So like sometimes it's the fat soluble pathways, sometimes it's the water soluble pathways, sometimes it's methylation. But I would say the and and. Uh, homocysteine then inflammatory marker is a great one to monitor, but that's one way too. You can know how should I supplement because it's like you go do your blood work and it's like, well, my liver enzymes are up. My homocysteine is elevated. Um, I'm seeing, you know, five liver markers here, things like B vitamins, um, glutathione, uh, milk thistle, all those are really effective 
for liver clearance and detox. Yeah. Okay, that's good to know. So I'm curious, if we want to clear the toxins really well, do you also teach or believe in reducing our toxic load? Because I know we cannot avoid toxins. You walk out into the air and you've got toxins. So do you believe in people doing their part to reduce their toxic load? For sure, for sure. So I would say the best place for that typically is starting with air and and then and mm-hmm. then your water. So there's awesome, um, you know, HEPA-based filters. Um, as weird as it sounds, the hygiene in the home plays like a huge role. And I know uh, just seeing, uh, you know, your content, you are a mastermind when it comes to toxins and utilizing. So sometimes it's a product, sometimes it's mold, sometimes it's a paint. Um, it depends on what the person's actually reacting to, which by the way, there are certain tests that you can do uh, to discover what your immune system is making antibodies against chemically. And so you'll know like, oh, hey, I have antibodies for, you know, this pathogen or, um, you know, this toxin and this toxin and uh, multipores and and whatever it is. So you can know and kind of pick and choose in your own home, like, okay, we definitely got to get rid of all products that have this ingredient in it. So that's a way to get a little more customized and effective, but you have to kind of think of a cumulative effect. So you may not notice as like you clean the air, you get the, you get the water systems cleaned, an immediate difference. But like if a, if a kid is being exposed to a higher level of toxins over, you know, a year or two or five or 10, they're in a completely different place health-wise. So I think it is way, way better to optimize your air, your water quality to as high a level as you can possibly handle. And usually for people who have developed um, chemical intolerances, step one usually is removing them from that chemical and, and, and dropping that exposure down as low as you can. It's very challenging to all of a sudden like be exposed at higher levels and then, um, and, and then start to gain tolerance back to it. Okay. So I'm curious to know what, well, and I know lots of listeners are curious, what tests do they do in order to find out like which um, antibodies they've created for which chemicals? So antibody testing for whether it's foods or whether it's chemicals or whether it's self-tissue, these these are gold. So you want to know the antibodies your immune system is making and what they're making them against. So there's a uh, Cyrix Array 11 is what tests the chemical um, reaction. So it's called chemical tolerance. Uh, so it kind of measures, so to say, how well you tolerate chemicals. Cyrix array, um, 10 is actually testing for antibodies against hundreds of foods. And it's pretty unique because when it comes to food, uh, testing, uh, most food, um, tests will only do, um, uh, essentially foods in their raw form. So they won't actually do uh, foods mixed with other foods. They won't do it cooked versus raw. And in reality, most of the foods we eat are not raw. So um, that's something really significant. Um, so Cyrix Array 10 is for the food. Cyrix Array 11 is for the chemicals. Cyrix Array 5 is a 24 tissue, um, self-tissue screening for antibodies. So um, that one is the big autoimmune panel. Oh, okay. That's actually really good to know. I'm curious. Uh, well, I want to do that one for the chemicals. Like I said, I've done it for the food, but not chemicals. So that would be really interesting. Yeah. So uh-huh. before we close, I am curious, why do you think that autoimmune issues are so on the rise these days? That's a great question. 
I would say out of everything, there's two main culprits. Number one is the foods. So yeah, over the last 20 years, I mean, autoimmunity is just so prevalent. Um, the way that man has manipulated and modernized foods and their structure, it's making them different protein structures and your immune system doesn't recognize what those are. So our immune system was not designed to recognize a protein that's been altered 10%. So food manipulation, and that's why, in my opinion, the way that they've done with pesticides, they spray the fields to make gluten, uh, uh, you know, hybridized and genetically modified, it's a new protein. And so when we constantly, and it's really bad because if you go down the street, everything's processed. <laughs> I mean, everything's manipulated. And so like, we just keep giving these foods and eating them and giving it to our kids and um, their immune system is lose that discernment. And it says, well, I think this is food, but it's not exactly food. And it becomes, when it starts to happen like that too much, and some other things that go on, um, all of a sudden it can become, um, start attacking those food proteins. And that ultimately can lead to attacking of self tissues. So when a food has been manipulated in such a way that it all of a sudden starts to resemble body tissue as well, um, and your immune system believes that food's a, a problem, all of a sudden it says, oh, I see this thyroid tissue that's also very similar to this food protein that I think is a virus now, it starts attacking both. Okay. So that's how an autoimmunity can certainly be initiated through exclusively the food spectrum. Um, the other big one certainly is toxins and chemicals. So yeah, just the, just the way that things are polluted um, certainly hyperactivates the immune system as well. Man, that's incredible. It just comes down to then that people have got to be empowered and know this information. Otherwise, this is never going to stop because the big food industry is just going to keep promoting or producing this food. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Well, thank you so much for being here today on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time and explaining autoimmune issues. If my listeners are listening to this and just sort of feeling overwhelmed as to where to start, what is like your first tip you would give them? Where should they begin? So I would say it's as important to spend time, effort, and energy to find the right clinician as even the time and effort invested into the interventions. So yeah, I would say really do research and step one would be find like an expert, a qualified expert who can really analyze blood chemistry through optimal lenses and um, really be able to pick up the details who also has the care and the compassion. Um, and you can kind of tell, you know, when working with doctors, like, you know, are they really paying attention to details? Um, do they really, uh, you know, care about my case and, and who I am as a person? Um, typically, if you can find that doctor uh, for you, um, that is, I would say the number one thing that can, that can change the game. So that's what I would start out with. I absolutely love that advice. And I agree, uh, 100% with you. In fact, when I was dealing with my depression, it took me two years to find a doctor. Oh, wow. And so I tell people it might take you time and it's completely okay to try a doctor and say, thank you for your time and not go again and try someone else because not everybody is a fit for everyone. And so take right. the time. Oh, totally. Take the time to find that correct doctor. So thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. So if my listeners want to learn more from you, where can they find you? So the so there's a couple of things. If you, if you go to our um, 
the Red River Health and Wellness website. So Red River Health and Wellness uh, com. There, there's a number of clinics with Red River. We're all, all over the place. Uh, so we have seven clinics at the moment, I believe, six, seven clinics. I am actually at the clinic in Logan, Utah. Um, now you can uh, certainly start in terms of like a consult there, contact me there. Also my Instagram page, it, it would be a great one at Daniel Torres DC. Um, and then Dr. Josh Red, who's the head clinician of the clinics that we work at, uh, he has a great page, tons of valuable information. And the links in their bio, uh, in his bio, is uh, will give you lots of great resources. And if someone actually wants to schedule an appointment or something like that, that would be the way to go as well. Well, I love following you on Instagram. That's how I found out about you. Um, you just give great advice and they're easy little tips and it's easy to understand. So I enjoy following you. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I always close my podcast episodes with asking the guest what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you say it is? That's a really fantastic question. So from what I've seen in my own personal experience, and I would say even, even the studies tend to back it up, um, the relationships that you have, um, and especially when it comes to immune system function, there's probably nothing on the planet that weights as heavily as establishing healthy, good uh, relationships. So that, and I would probably say um, gratitude weights pretty dang heavily in terms of physical vitality. Um, those I'd say would be the two top two ingredients for, for, for me. I love that. And I think they can go hand in hand too. When you have gratitude for something, you can build a better relationship, a healthier relationship with that. So I, I love that. Thank you, Dr. Torres, so much for being here today and taking the time to educate all of us and listeners go follow him. You'll learn a lot. And again, thank you for being here. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.